This, this, this right here is the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your beloved local community radio station or on your podcast app. My name is David Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. I'm Lauren Latour. Right now, we are going to talk mostly about alternative economies. But before that, some news. And before that, I get mad at Elon Musk for a second. Wait, but who are you interviewing today? I'm interviewing Amanda Janu, who's the economics and policy lead for the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. And we're chatting all about different visions for how you could reorganize the economy. And this is this week we're doing this. Next week we're talking about the, we talk uh, with Rob Shorter about the donut economics. And so we've got two weeks in a row about alternative economy, economics uh, before we return with somewhat more regular scheduled programming. Nice. And is it a good interview? Oh, it's a great interview. We have a great time. We, we make fun of how Adam Smith, uh, you know, basically lived with his mom his entire life, despite writing a book about how you had to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We talk about how industry is eating itself. Wait, 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 wait. I, feel, I think on this show you've conflated like Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, John Smith, Walt Whitman and like every single white man who wrote anything before 1900, you believe lived with his mother and talked about how they need how you need to be a rugged rugged outlaw. It is a stated <laughs> fact. They all did live with their moms, but also just a quick correction: Adam Smith is who we're referring to. Yes. John Smith is the creep from Pocahontas. For what it's worth. It is totally okay to like live in a multi-generational household. That's not the critique. The yeah. critique is when you've got guys who are like, you gotta be like independent and self-sufficient and like and like what like what am I referring to? Like a really like in like proponents of like an individualistic society whereby you have to provide for yourself and only you and there's no such thing as like wider community benefits. That's what we're right. that's what we're I mean, making fun of. Yeah, I mean maybe living maybe... in multi-generational housing is like a great thing. For yes. a variety of reasons. Yeah, and Adam Smith specifically, you know, the father of modern economics, sort of ignoring the unbelievable levels of externalities in his own life that kept him basically alive to theorize about how we're all individualistic actors going around in the marketplace. That's, to me, what gets to me, which is why I can't not keep bringing it up. But anyways, the interview is great. Uh, conversation is fantastic. And... For folks who want to get a bit of more of a backdrop into some of the conversations that have been going on for quite some time, you can either, as Lauren might suggest, read Marx, or as one of our uh, one of our listeners suggested, there's a book that came out in 1958 called *The Affluent Society* uh, by by John Kenneth Galbraith that sort of begins to examine, like he wrote it at that point. You can sort of see from there you can track pretty successfully what he was seeing at the time in terms of rich in, in the enriching of the private sector at the cost of the public sector becoming what we live today, which is a very, very poor public sector and a unbelievably rich private sector. And so this conversation has, you know, dates back a couple hundred years and there are many ways to sort of start and continue it. But the next two weeks, we're talking about folks who are looking at it from starting now. I thought you wanted to yell about Elon. I do. I do want to yell about Elon. It's true. Okay, very quickly, before we get into news, which is obviously more important Elon than Elon lives with his mother, <laughs> and, he, just, and he lives on property owned by his mother, and he has written several screeds I mean, about how we need to strap ourselves in leather 
and just murder murder warthogs in the woods to survive. And that's manhood. Elon Musk did get his first amount of money because his parents owned an emerald mine in apartheid South Africa. Emeralds, that's a, that's a nice gem. So it's not, in, he doesn't live with his mom to my knowledge, but it's not like he didn't also get a pretty big boost from Ma and Pa for his quote-unquote entrepreneurial escapades. But what I'm currently about on about, very quickly, is that for those of you who don't know, we record this show two days early, so this is recorded on Wednesday and aired on Friday, and today Elon decided to ban all accounts that follow rich people's private jets and tell you where they land. And these things scrape public information and just tweet out when they're flying places, and it's the bot, you know, not no, no person is running these. And it's, as Lauren said before the show, arguably the most anti-free speech thing that this supposed free speech warrior could do because this is publicly available information that he just doesn't like and has decided that it needs to be removed from the platform and for no like the argument being made is that it's for safety but it's not like this information doesn't stop existing it's just not currently being tweeted out anyone looking for this could still find it very easily and so it's just he doesn't like being shamed or being known as someone who flies around a lot because you know it probably hurts his um, on, on this point, already completely failed image. But anyways, it's just so both antithetical and also so protective of the wealthiest class of people, the private jet-owning set of people, that it I can't help but be very annoyed by it. And that's it. Yeah, no, I'm so over this weenie's midlife crisis. Um, <laughs> also this week, very big on Twitter, um, was is like footage of him being invited on stage at a Dave Chappelle show and then everybody booing him. And then my favorite is his follow-up tweet whereby he's like, actually like 90% of the audience was, was cheering and you can only hear the 10% that boos. So like, actually people were like really happy to see me. And it's, and I don't know, it is just one of those things where it's like, again, it's like the fact that the richest man in the world cares so much about what the rest of us think about him is like so deeply telling. This isn't even like a comment on like society or the environment or anything. It's just like Elon's such a an F word loser. Like he's <laughs> such a loser. I can't yeah. handle it. And I'm just so sick of having to hear about him. All right. So we've rant completed. We don't need to subject you anymore to any more Elon Musk talk. Dave, would you please give us some news? And now the green majority turns to its patented coveted golden section of contemporary occurrences. The Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, or GFANCE. Now this is an this is a this is a this is a an alliance that Stefan sung the praises of to high heaven about a year ago. Is that true? To high I don't really think to this is high true. heaven. The angels heard it. And they began to dance at the glory of Stefan's words. The Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero GFANS is remaining an advisory body rather than becoming a legally binding pact, since many of its members will not be meeting its emissions standards. The alliance was made last year at COP26 and consists of banks and financial groups with a total of $130 trillion in assets worldwide. But now the Emissions Reduction Alliance that they're all a part of will probably not bring them uh, towards any major reductions because many of the banks were failing. They were going to drop out. They were going to quit. They were going to get kicked out. And then they were like, okay, fine. We're just going to advise you instead. And you can stay in the club. 
Uh, Gabon's environment minister recently said, until more people in developed nations are dying because of the climate crisis, it's not going to change. Um, current net zero climate plans require more land for tree planting than exists um, on Earth. Not all of the land on Earth, but more than could conceivably be planted with trees. The statistic comes from Melbourne Climate Futures Land Gap Report. And the report states, quote, the cumulative area of land needed to meet projected biological carbon removal in national climate pledges and commitments is almost 1.2 billion hectares, equivalent to current global cropland. Countries' climate pledges rely on an unre unrealistic amounts of land-based carbon removal. Evidence shows that indigenous peoples and local communities with secure land rights vastly outperform both governments and private landholders in preventing deforestation, conserving biodiversity, and producing food sustainably. G-Fans was, for those of you who remember, Mark Carney's big thing, which I would say I had a healthy dose of skepticism for, rather than singing the praises of. I thought you were saying it's, it's a revolutionary end of, uh, end of the carbon spewing era. Well, we'll have to go back and, and see exactly. If anyone's a roll tape, but... Um, but I do think, very quickly, this first story and the tree story both go to, goes to show you that... The solutions trotted out by the country that we currently live in, of so-called Canada, are so far pretty weak sauce. You know, Mark Carney is not going to... Like, the belief that you have to have banks involved in climate action to get real done is not something that's not necessarily wrong, but the belief that they will do something very clearly has shown to be pretty misguided. And the backup plan of, well, we'll plant billions of trees is also not great. And so the sooner we stop believing that we're going to magically convince the banks to do something or magically come up with a tree planting scenario that will solve climate change, both of which are basically ways to obfuscate the reality that we need to shut down all fossil fuel extraction as quickly as possible. I also read recently that uh, even, even as some fossil fuel companies produce less or or begin to switch away those assets that they drop are then bought up by private equity firms and banks so it's these it's the if, if there's money to be made that money's going to get made yeah and the getting the banks is a first step in sort of removing that social license but like they're not even moving so you know what hope do we have even hsbc recently said basically that they were going to stop financing fossil fuels but then gave an exception for hsbc canada because of the oil sands like this is the world we live in let's stop kidding ourselves just like these are these are points that indigenous peoples have been making for so long and have been really doing an awesome job of like reiterating over and over and over and over again in a lot of these like international spaces for diplomacy um because because yeah when it when when we're putting forward market-based mechanism solutions and weird carbon accounting it's like th these are false solutions to climate change the only thing that is going to meaningfully make a, a difference when it comes to climate change and climate action and reducing temperatures is directly reducing emissions it doesn't matter how many like the tree planting thing, this right here, disproves it as as a possible like theory and path forward. At least, at least the degree to which we're leaning on it. Not to mention all of like, like the problematic nature of us continuing to like seize land in the name of like climate action or whatever. And yeah, the G fans, it's 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 all just 
it, it's a false solution. It's all just a way of propping up the existing economy for that much longer so people can continue to make money. What we come back to is, is the point we always come back to. The only solution is, is, is the dismantlement of capitalism. <laughs> the the <laughs> that's simple that's all there is to it guys i don't yeah. know what to tell you so easy not a problem but is but is is it even capitalism because as mr john kenneth galbraith the uh <laughs> the revolution <laughs> the revolutionary author of the mid-20th century pointed out back in the 60s like if corporations are big enough if there's if the industrial state is real that the industry that those capitalists those industrial capitalists have so much power that they can plan the economy around their designs. Is it is it capitalism that we're dismantling if we dismantle that? Yes. <laughs> you like you use the word cap capital a bunch of times. The argument right now is like, do we live in a truly capitalist I'm state? Speaking or of, more I'm speaking of the John's. Sort of the, I'm speaking of the, the Adam Smith capitalism that Stefan was critiquing before is much different from corporations controlling the economy. Like they're they're very different systems. And because right? like, you cannot start and become a, a large conglomerate, right, in the traditional ca no, notion of capitalist uh, endeavor. Yeah, like Rogers and in, Bell in are not going to get a new person. Salad. Yeah, well, and I think as the interview actually later with Amanda uh, Janu begins to dive into, there is still this obsession worldwide with growth. And I think the connection of capitalism and the obsession with growth is where we still see that sort of the Adam Smith piece of this coming in. You know, it's still this idea that as long as you're making more and more money, that's the ultimate goal. And which leads to what we see, what's what we see now. And what, again, we actually mentioned this again in the interview, which is like how few corporations now control so much in an every sector, but that's sort of stems out of this goal of growth. And so how do we break down the overthrowing of the goal of, of growth being the central goal and not something like, well-being or any or you know the planet surviving you know these other little small things that uh maybe we should care about but we are running dangerously out of time and there's so much more news blue whales ingest 10 million tiny particles of plastic per day people need to know dave people need to know that um it was discovered a couple months ago that saliva from wax worms can quite easily break down plastic bags so they might be able to use wax worms to to make plastic uh, disintegrate. So we're going to have an indentured class of wax worms. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I'm kidding. They'll synthesize their saliva. It's going to be great. This is what's going to save us. I know it. Yes. <laughs> um, National Security Advisor Richard Fadden warned the Canadian House of Commons last month that we can't keep calling in the military to deal with natural disasters because it makes them worse soldiers because they can't do as much battle training. Oh, not. Think about that. Think about that. The 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 this was this is like a former top military guy and he was an, and then he was a national security advisor. He thinks that Canadian troops need to be battle ready. What what are we doing with these <laughs> troops? Oh, we just said silliness. Like by oh, that yeah. logic we should like dismantle like the military orchestra and stuff like that. Anything that's <laughs> not directly battle related is a waste of time and money. Um, British Columbia signed a deal with Washington, Oregon, and California. Um, this might have been in October. Could have been in September. To accelerate the building of a low-carbon economy. So, um, Coastal GasLink and one of its partners, who are building the LNG pipeline through Wet'suwet'en land, are being sued for $10 million of unpaid wages to four companies they hired. 
three of the companies that are that are suing to be paid are partnered with First Nations communities. So remember when the LNG when this, these guys were going through native land and they were like, "We're hiring, we're hiring uh, indigenous people to build it." Now they're now they're just not paying. They're they're having to be sued to actually pay those people. Um, Duncan's First Nation in northern Alberta is suing the province for damages caused by the cumulative effects of industry. The B.C. Supreme Court ruled in favor of a similar lawsuit from the Blueberry River First Nation against that province last year. So here we have a First Nation actually being able to say, you owe us money just for everything you've done on our land ever, which is interesting. Uh, The Missinaabe Missinaabe Cree, Brunswick House, and Chapleau Cree First Nations are suing Ontario for mismanaging and ultimately failing to maintain its boreal forests. Chief Jason Gauthier of the Missinaabe Cree is quoted in the Toronto Star as saying, There is a concern from the First Nations level that we're creating fiber farms and that we're just looking for that and that we are just looking for wood and we're not looking uh, at. uh, I wrote this incorrectly. We're not looking. We're looking at not. Why did I write this so many times? (laughs) And we're not looking at the sustainability of the ecosystems within the forest. And finally, Brett Forrester and Olivia Stefanovic reported for the CBC recently that Ottawa has agreed to give $31 million and 120 hectares of land back to the the Tandanaga Mohawks in Ontario. But the money and land are going to the Band Council, which of course is an invention of the Racist Indian Act. And the council itself opposed the very activists who started taking that land back in 2007, uh, which has arguably led to this uh, conclusion anyway. So the activists begin the movement, right? right? And then the spoils go to the the colonial, the, right. the colonial uh, shell, which is was actually against the movement to begin with. Right. I, I will do one last uh, quick callback before we go to music break, which is along with Coastal Gaslink, you know, who else is not paying a whole bunch of people? Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Mm. Uh, dude, literally, the New York Times got called as cost-saving measures by refusing to pay severance to all of his workers or rent in all of the buildings that they have to pay rent in. That is, quote-unquote, a cost-saving measure, according to the New York Times, and not something that the rest of us would be thrown out on the street for and literal theft. He's not paying severance, and what is the rent thing? Twitter headquarters is no longer paying, they're not paying rent for the places they are in. Wow. And now we're going to maybe hit some music. In any case, we're returning with Stefan's wonderful interview with... Amanda Janu, uh, who's the economics and policy lead for the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. And they are talking about the economy. Yeah, and how it could be better. Nice. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll take myself another opportunity and uh, remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, home of such podcasts as Alberta Advantage, The Breach Show, and the Pullback Podcast, as well as over 40 other excellent shows.
and welcome back to the green majority here on ciut 89.5 fm or perhaps our one of our wonderful and appreciated radio syndicates across the country or maybe found us on the podcast which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found including now with the harbinger media network and all the wonderful other shows that are on that podcast network check them out as mentioned earlier on the show i am here with amanda janu the Economics and Policy Lead for the Well-Being Economy Alliance. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So by way of introduction, what was your background and how did you get interested in alternative economies? Well, probably with all origin stories, it begins in childhood. So I'm from a small rural town in Vermont in the United States, and it's a town that's so small that we don't have like a proper sort of municipal government, but rather a town meeting. And so every year the citizens come together and they sort of discuss and decide how much, everything from how much money is going to go to the schools or roads to who's going to be in charge of collecting sort of stray dogs that year. And so this was very much my introduction to politics and to economics. And so you can probably imagine my horror when I entered into university and started studying economics because for me, I was interested in the subject because I felt like I saw the world as this Venn diagram with all of these different political and cultural and environmental and even, you know, spiritual issues. And somewhere towards the center, I felt like sat the economy. And if you change that system, it'll ripple out. So I wanted to learn about economics and how the economy worked, but ultimately just ended up finding a bunch of old white dudes talking about, you know, GDP growth rates and stock market values, like they matter more than life itself. And and particularly troubling for me was that there was an assumption in economics that it's governed by its own natural laws and not by us, right? And there's no other social science, which is sort of viewed as if it's, yeah, it's just out there abstract beyond our control and not a product of our own sort of human design and decision making. And so that really started my now decades long love hate sort of relationship with economics. I started studying sort of heterodox economics and history of economics thought political economy development studies and all of these different sort of areas to get a better understanding of different economic paradigms and systems that felt more empowering and, and could give me a sense of where can actually make change. And ultimately, at the end of my studies, because with many people, I was much more aware of the problems and maybe the solutions. And so really felt like neoliberalism was the worst. This whole idea that governments and the societies they represent should take a hands-off approach to the economy seemed like a terrible idea. And so ultimately ended up working in economic policy for a long time, specifically industrial policy. So I worked for the United Nations and other international development organizations, supporting governments around developing policies to sort of specifically protect and promote certain economic activities relative to others or to transform the structures of their economy. And in that work, one of the most important parts was to ask, what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, what are you really trying to achieve with this economic policy? What are you really trying to achieve with economic growth? And realizing that the answers were different. So for some governments, it was inequality reduction. Others, it was peace. For others, it was resilience. And and the goals matter and having clarity on those goals. Because if, you know, in Myanmar, for example, it was rural urban inequality reduction, then they shouldn't follow the standard growth strategy of just attracting huge multinational corporations who know how to concentrate wealth better than anyone and might want to support 
small, informal, and like locally embedded rural firms, right? Who are going to ensure a more balanced and equitable development. And so that sort of led me to the well-being economy movement and yeah, my exploration of the different ways we we change the system. Yeah, that's super cool. I, I do feel like it's sort of funny. You get the economics. It's like, it's the invisible hand, but it's really real. And it's like, where else in this world, if someone told you there was an invisible hand that was controlling of stuff, you know, outside of theology, which is a, a whole yeah. sector, but like, but no, this is hard for some reason to think it's hard science that this invisible hand definitely has impacts on everyone. And, and, and there's no question it definitely doesn't exist and definitely doesn't have the influence that these particular people decided it did, you know, like a couple hundred years ago. I was talking to a degrowth guy a couple months ago now, and he mentioned that I believe Adam Smith lived with his mom when he wrote his most formative memoir. And it was sort of like, so even then you were sort of using, you know, unpaid labor to get the point across that. No, really, that the market should control everything, but I will just soak up a whole bunch of externalities out of paid labor and for my mom and just, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm up to. <laughs> yeah. This, little too on the nose, really. But great. That was a great introduction to yourself. That's, that is amazing. And I do think that's a familiar path. You know, you start somewhere, you start learning about this, and you're like, ah, oh, man, this really does touch everything. And mm -hmm. so from there, what does the Wellbeing Economy Alliance aim to do? So the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, or we all, as we like to, to call it, really aims to bring together different organizations, governments, academics, activists, and just change makers from all over the world who are really committed to building a different economic sort of system and paradigm. And, and I think for us, what's really important is that whether or not you're working in the climate change movement or in feminism, or, you know, you're working in purpose-led businesses, that there's more that unites us than divides us in this journey. And that for us, we're trying to build the power base, like the movement that is really needed to push for this change. So that, as you were saying, it's not just here's a different economic theory or model that we're just waiting to have imposed upon us, right? That we can be the proactive sort of builders of that different system. And so I often say, you know, the well-being economy, like alliance term, like comes under so many different banners. But at their heart is this recognition that we have to stop treating people and planet like they're here to serve the economy and start treating the economy like it's here to serve us, right? And so that sort of realization, I think, is what, what binds us. And we try to support this movement by making the ideas, like the new economic ideas and examples and concepts more accessible to make them feel intuitive, to make them feel possible for people, and to also support the movement with new narratives. So moving beyond just critique of the current economic system to really envisioning a hopeful alternative towards which to work. And yeah, just believing that that you know, can help to to inspire a movement worldwide. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't think there's anything more necessary for change than to believe it's possible. And yeah. to get that far, you got to start showing people, you know, where it's happening and giving people a positive vision. There's only so far you can get by saying this isn't working before you have to show someone how something could work and something new. And so we're having, I've had a few conversations in, in the upcoming shows, we're actually going to talk to someone from the donut economics, which again, sort of similar kind of thinking as mm -hmm. as, as y'all. And then after that, in early January, we'll, we're chatting with some authors from of a book called The End of This World, which is envisioning sort of another future 
that's bring together you know labor, indigenous sovereignty, and and climate activists together to sort of envision what a a real just transition could look like. And you know, all these world buildings are so necessary for this kind of thing. Absolutely. Well, that's incredible. And I will definitely say, you know, for us, Kate Rayworth was like, you know, is one of our ambassadors, as well as Jason Hickel. And, you know, this is the whole idea of whether degrowth or donut economic, solidary economy, sort of terms, circular community wealth building, it's all part of this movement. And I think what you're saying, the fact that you're also ha- going to have so many shows on this, to me, is really hopeful and illustrative of the paradigm shift we're in. You know, people are wanting to see the intersections and really, yeah, get to sort of the system from the beginning. And as you said, I think the greatest limitation we have is our own imaginations, and it's particularly when it comes to the economy, but that that's changing and it's fantastic. Yeah, for sure. I, f- I feel like we've been all told that, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the economy is for some reason unchangeable and is somehow this truth, which which is funnily enough, like not even true for hard sciences, let alone most social sciences. Like how many hard sciences have had these firm truths that like everyone circles the earth, everybody. That's a hard scientific fact. We've we've done this. You know, or the our models for atoms even, how often how consistently those seem to change. And yet for some reason in a social science, which you can't even have some of the measurement kind of we can do so, we've decided that it's unchangeable. And so, absolutely. yeah, sorry, I cut you off, but I, I feel like every day we get newspapers or we see somehow or like our political representatives talking about how important the economy is, like the economy trumps every other like social or environmental consideration. So it's simultaneously the areas that's the most important and also the area that we just conveniently can't do anything about. <laughs> yeah. And that leaves you yeah, in a pretty frustrating position. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, maybe we'll get into this later, but that's before the show, we were talking a little bit about the frustration with how the central banks are responding to the inflation right now. It's because like, we only have one lever, though, we keep pulling it. That's all they got. Um, mm-hmm. But when we talk about redesigning the economy, because again, as we mentioned, we have to have a sort of a positive vision or a different vision to be able to replace it with. Can't just say this one's not working, despite how, you know, very clearly, I think that's the case. So when you talk about redesigning the economy, what does that look like? Hmm. Well, I started to allude to this. It really starts with the goals we set, right? So how are we actually evaluating the economy's success? Because right now we're just evaluating not only the economy, but our society's success by how quickly the economy grows, which just tells us how much we're producing and nothing in terms of actually whether or not that rapid increases in production is is contributing to our ultimate quality of life and the quality of life of all living beings on the planet. And so it starts with different goals and really evaluating the economy, for example, by its capacity to ensure that everybody has enough, right, to live a life of dignity and purpose by the economy's capacity to genuinely cherish and protect and regenerate our natural world, its ability to recognize our need for connection. And so to support meaningful connection and meaningful work and a sense that we are actually contributing to something that is is valuable to others. It's about an economy that's evaluated by its level of fairness so that we can get out of this current trap we have of just growing the economy so we can take some of that wealth through taxes to fix the damages done to people and planet in the process 
and actually build an economy which is fair by design, which has justice at its heart by ensuring that everyone has a fair amount of time and voice and power and wealth from the get-go through different types of enterprise structures and ownership systems and the commons. And I think last, but definitely not least, it's about an economy that is centered in participation, like recognizes our need for participation. So we have a voice and we feel like we can have a say and actively build like our collective destinies. And so it's locally rooted, it's reflective of our cultures and values, and people are actively engaged in its design. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I love that piece of it being locally rooted because time and time again, I feel like when you get people who really have thought long and hard about solutions, so often their answer is, well, it depends where you are. Like for design, for example, you know, how much of really, really smart design is basically, well, where are you? Mm-hmm. What's your climate? What materials exist in your in your spaces? And that in designing from that place-based network and and relying on sort of the knowledge and the history of where you are gets you so much further than trying to just, you know, because capital has no walls, capital has no borders. It, it just presumes it's the best no matter where it goes and whatever it's done somewhere else must work other places. And that's just such a different reality than, than is true. Right. And so I love the idea that this version, your vision of a better economy is rooted in the fact of locality, you know, because it's that's been true about energy. It's true about design. It's true about so many different things that like letting the people who are there and living through it have ownership seems to be one of the keys, regardless of what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think this really relates as well. Even though we hear the term economy all of the time, I don't think we often have enough space to even explore what that term means right and so ultimately it's just a word for the way that we produce and provide for one another and the way that we produce and provide for one another is always going to be influenced by our geography our history our cultures our politics and so many other factors and so the idea that there can be some one-size-fits-all economic system or model feels absurd but also equally you know the idea as i mentioned that there's some perfect alternative economic model waiting to be imposed on us is also is not a reality. We have to be the better economy we envision, right? And actively work to build it. Yeah, for sure. And so let's talk about that work. How do you plan to create this change that you want to see? Oh, well, so for us, our theory of change, as it were, is all about, first of all, amplifying the work that's in the space. So as you were saying, so amplifying the work that degrowth or post-growth, that the climate movement, that the feminist movement, that communities and governments are doing around the world and to be a connector between the layers and the players. So to be able to be at a global level and think about the shifts that are needed in let's say our global economic architecture in order to make space for more local self-determination but also allow for, we have a lot of like hubs, for example, which is where when we have we all members that are geographically located in a specific region or, or country, that they are working on really building those context-specific sort of transformative strategies that make sense for, for that place, but can find connection, solidarity, and support from this global network as well. And so 
beyond the connecting, it's also the convening and ensuring that that we can communicate across different silos and ideologies and and find our shared solidarity and, and humanity in it. Yeah, that seems so important in part just because, I mean, one thing capital does really effectively is consolidate power. And one thing that, you know, people don't do necessarily super well is find strengths across differences when you talk about what else could happen, right? Like, I think part of the power of the current economic system is that it consolidates power into people who want to keep those systems alive. And it's very hard to push back against that because people end up having sort of like maybe like 50% agreement, but not 75 or 100% agreement. And so they can't unite in a way that allows them to push back against the ways that the capital class has the ability to do so, because that's the design of the system, right? Like, and over the last hundred years, I think we've seen that time and time again, like fewer and fewer and fewer companies own more and more and more and more to the point where, you know, if we can keep going the same way going a hundred years from now, there'll be Dizzy and GE and the whole thing will be one of these, like, you know, and like, at which point you really start to wonder how do, how do we have a democracy if you have these consolidated of, of mm-hmm. you know, of power? So that's a bit of a depressing thought, though. So maybe let's move into a slightly less depressing thought, which is that there is change happening now. And one Mm -hmm. of the things that y'all do really well, I think, is pointing out the fact to people that change is happening now. And there are examples of of success in in people taking this differently and and building societies around not just growth. And so can you walk us through a a few of those examples? No, absolutely. I mean, your whole point around the systematic sort of consolidation of power. Let's start there, right? Because it's true, every single sector globally in the world now is is dominated by less than a handful of multinational corporations. And, you know, since the pandemic, when we saw 10 billionaires double their wealth, 99% of humanity's incomes fell. And so we are in a situation where even that idea that like, oh, the pie is growing and it's leaving everyone better off and it's all going to trickle down. I think we're we're at a moment where people are realizing that that, that doesn't work. It's, it doesn't happen that way. And so we need to think about a different narrative of who are the genuine drivers of this economy? Because is it multinational corporations? Is it global finance or is it us? Are we the ones, are we the economy? And therefore, what is our sort of role and responsibility and power within that space as well? And so I do think at the global level, we are seeing some really exciting shifts. And so one of the the probably most prominent ones for we all is the well-being economy governments. So that's a partnership of New Zealand, Scotland, Finland, Iceland, Wales, and Canada actually recently joined, who have all developed alternative indicators of progress from GDP that center in social and ecological well-being. And so really look at what matters for people's quality of life, what matters for our environmental sustainability, and how do we look at inequities and also governance processes and what really matters, and then start to evaluate our progress by that. And that in and of itself is pretty powerful. But then they're also committed to coming together and and sharing best practice and also failures and lessons learned and and how do you actually go about utilizing that new North Star and that new metric of progress to meaningfully transform the way that decisions are made and also the ways in which your economy is structured. And it's a journey in and of itself, but 
you know, I think at the global level, there are exciting examples of where we're seeing not only, you know, this group of governments changing, right, our, our whole narratives of, of development and success as societies, but also the global minimum tax standard, for example, that Yellen, like our treasury secretary, put forth and now has been signed on to by nearly every government in the world for 15 percent, I believe, minimum corporate tax standards stop with all of the tax havens and the tax avoidance and this race to the bottom amongst countries like that would have been unfathomable. Yeah. Like even I feel like a few years ago. And so we're seeing these kind of shifts happen and, and a, a pushback against the sort of status quo logic. But we were speaking about earlier as well. I think we see this, this shift happening all around us. One of the things I think a lot about is how during COVID, the identification of essential workers was really huge because so many of them had previously been labeled low-skilled. And when you call something low-skilled, it somehow legitimizes low pay, right? But when you call them essential, you start to get a very different conception of what are we valuing in our economy and why? Because if we're the most essential, then why aren't we the most highest paid, right? And that question is very valid. And that comes to the core of, of power and of the dynamics and of the ways in which we yeah, but we currently value very exploitative behaviors as opposed to the behaviors that ultimately contribute to our collective well-being. And that's not inevitable. That is very much by design. And so we're seeing a rising labor consciousness around the world, a revival of sort of unions and strikes and movements and of people's unwillingness, especially as we were talking earlier in the face of the cost of living crisis, to listen to the same narrative of just, oh, well, you know, the unions are bad or the workers, it's their fault or something like this. And I think there's a, yeah, there's a growing consciousness that we're seeing all around us of the ways that people feel the injustice of our current system and are, are advocating for change. Yeah, for sure. I, was, I recently saw a thing that said along the lines of like, if you accept that some positions have to exist, and then also refuse to pay them. What you're saying is that they have to be poor. Like mm. you, you, that, there's no other way to do it. Like if you, if you refuse to provide, especially you know, as we talk about the cost of living, especially in cities these days, like more and more and more. What are you saying if you just do not believe that someone who is most often the caring or serving economy in some fashion cannot live in the area? What you're saying is they that there's a set of people who you rely on undeniably like these are these aren't jobs that people don't rely on deserve to be in an underclass and that is just i think no one when put that way or few people would put that way would really own up to that belief right like very few people would say no i do think that a certain set of people should struggle to live because i want to get my fast food burger or something yeah. you know it's just it's it's unacceptable. And then again, some of this is about how our current system obfuscates these realities, right? Like you're able to be like, oh no, it's the market. It's not me. <laughs> what is this? Absolutely. So sometimes, you know, obviously I'm, I'm very centered in the narratives of hope and, and of the optimism and our capacity to change, but I'm also not, you know, immune to 
the weight of the world and the crisis that we are in. And it's, you know, it's heavy. And sometimes when I get down, I like to read this article, which is called The Optimism of Uncertainty by Howard Zinn. It's not a very long article, but he talks a lot about how we have this tendency to look at the world and to assume that all of the systems and structures and dynamics that currently exist will continue on into perpetuity, right? But in, he says in the reading of history, anything, but that is true. You can see how quickly things can change seemingly overnight as a result of, you know, collective action and of, you know, even sometimes small groups of individuals' actions. And, and that for him provides so much hope because, you know, we're even just talking about wages, but the whole construction of the labor market as an even idea of like paying people for their sort of like labor as opposed to just having people largely be subsistence and then being artisans of share, like selling certain types of, of goods. Like that happened in, you know, like the 1600s with like the enclosures and things like this, you know? And so we take certain things for granted as just given the way that we've structured it, but anything is possible. And and I think we're at a moment where, yeah, this is getting, you know, more radical than it's probably representative of we all, but we really have to question like why we treat people and planet like commodities, right? They're not commodities. And so we need to stop treating them as such and think about other ways in which to, yeah, provide for one another in a way that is in balance and not yeah. just growth. Yeah, for sure. And so to to get back to a bit of that future casting and and the work that we all does in April of this year you published a thing called the 2040 strategy can you can you mm -hmm. talk more about that oh my goodness yes i can i will say i don't know if you've been part of any strategy development process but especially when you're talking about something that's trying to work on global economic systems change it's a really it's a very somewhat often painful process of trying to put that into boxes and to bring complexity down into sort of linear linear and KPIs and, and stuff like that. But ultimately, I would say what's really important for us, and one of the things I really love about We All is one, that we envision ourselves as a time-bound project. We're not here to micromanage the change, we're here to catalyze the change. And so However, we can help in supporting and building connections and new initiatives like WeGo, for example, which like we helped to instigate, but now is is its own independent, like autonomous kind of, of partnership and grouping of governments or we all hubs where in Scotland, for example, they're now their own independent sort of organization and, and doing this work around promoting for that those transformations in Scotland. That for me is so huge because I think oftentimes we can get sucked into the narrative of our own self-importance and the need of us being sort of at the center of that. And if we really want to support meaningful collaboration and sustainable change, it needs to be in a way which looks beyond ourselves and, and builds those autonomous sort of connections and, and collaborations. And so part of this, I would say, is really about a multi-tier approach and I should also say, I, I come from the economics and policy area. And so we have amazing narratives and comms teams and people are working on movement stuff. And so I come from a slightly more of the nerdy side. <laughs> yeah. So the things that I will speak about are probably reflective of this as well. But, you know, at the global economic level, since we've been talking about this, this is an area where I'm really excited. We're going to like have a project because in the same way 
but which is really around bringing up radical, hopeful, alternative vision for our global economic system. And then backcasting and looking at the kind of institutional and like architectural reforms that in terms of economic processes and systems and institutions that would be necessary in order to support that. So it can be a foundation for our movement and our global membership to develop advocacy strategies around those core policies or areas that they feel are most important so that we can, again, make that space. Because, you know, I've worked with governments all around the world and even the most visionary, excited and, you know, go-getter sort of government that wants to do genuine transformative work is constrained by our global economic system currently. And so there has to be change at that level. And I do think we're going to come into a really exciting moment soon where similar to when after the financial crisis, I think myself, at least, and most people thought that immediately all of our economic standard economic thinking and assumptions and approaches would change. It took a while. It was like it sort of percolated and settled in over the course of maybe, I don't know, seven, eight years, and then led to this now what we're seeing, this renaissance and new economic thinking and initiatives and approaches. And similarly with COVID, I think that our utter failure to organize any globally coordinated response is similar going to percolate in and lead us to a renaissance and thinking about our global governance systems and the ways in which we want to be connected and coordinated in this world. And so building that kind of alternative vision and a hopeful vision that can maybe be there when people are looking for hopeful ideas, but also grounded in economic realities and also opportunities for us to to advocate for change. And so that's just like one of the areas that I happen to mention because I feel like we've been talking about it, but there's all sorts of stuff in the strategy, which is oh yeah. cool. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that you did that kind of strategy doc, you really said it's going to be, it could be multiple episodes if we really want to dive into each of the topics. So I, I appreciate the, the high level. So second last question, with all of your work on this, is it something that sort of stands out to you, you know, that you think either more people should be aware of or maybe a misconception that you come across often? Like maybe you are always explaining something to people when you chat, when they ask you, what do you do? And you're like, oh, this thing. But yeah, any, any anything that comes to mind? Mm. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is honestly what you were saying. When I explain to people what I do, and especially if I say, you know, I'm an economist or I work in economic policy, Generally, people cringe or just sort of politely change the subject, right? Because the economy and economics is not a sexy topic. And I think really importantly, even those who are really recognize the importance of the economy and its role will often feel like they have to make a disclaimer that they're not an expert, right? Like they're not an expert in economics. That they don't understand. You know, the economy, know it's important, but that sort of misconception to me is really important to sort of dispel that the economy is something that is too complicated and too abstract or too boring for you to understand. Because ultimately, you know, we are the economy. And as I said, it's you know, the way we produce and provide for one another. It's every aspect of our daily life is the economy, so much of it. And so even the ways in which we provide for one another, which is not through money, for example, those are just as important. And so when you were talking about the closures of cultural, like arts and cultural like spaces and of small restaurants and of these things, like all of this, the what we want to sort of see around us and the kind of culture and community we want to build around us and, and how that gets reflected in 
in the way we provide for one another. That all is is a part of the economy. And I think we all have a, a role and responsibility to engage in those discussions. That makes a lot of sense. And so for folks who, who may have heard this interview and want to get connected or learn more, how can they do that? Well, first of all, please check out our website. It's weall.org. And you can join as a member or you can join as a citizen and find other individuals who are located in your regions or areas or interest areas to be able to connect with. You can also consider joining a local hub. So for example, for you, Stefan, there's a Canada, like we all have in case you're interested in joining in a group in Toronto, for example, as well. We're building one here in Vermont. But, you know, also, if you're interested in doing this kind of transformative work, you can you can start a hub yourself with, you know, other like minded, passionate individuals and, and start pushing for the sort of narrative policy and economic systems change. And of course, you know, if you don't, I know many people probably don't have time to be as involved, but you just want to keep abreast on what's happening by my organization, but all of the different organizations in this movement, you can definitely follow us on socials or sign up for our newsletter or also just reach out personally. We're all pretty nice and we, we love to chat with interested people who are keen to join the movement. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Amanda Janu, the economics and policy lead of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. Really appreciate your time. And yeah, it is our tradition to give our guests the last word of the show. So if you have any thoughts to share with our general listeners or one last thought to have them take it away before the music brings, the time is now. Well, the last thought I would want to share is entering into the new year and the holiday season is that generosity in and of itself is a radical act. And so to have that time to recognize that we often center and, and believe that the economy is being fueled by greed, but it is just as much generosity and, and you can be a part of that too.